Hi, this is Sandy Linzer, songwriter, record producer for the Four Seasons and many other great artists, Whitney Houston. And I'm here on Follow Your Dream podcast with my friend Robert Miller, and I hope you enjoy the show. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Henry Gross, a very talented singer-songwriter. He was a founding member of Sha Na Na, the famous 1950s cover band. He later had a huge solo hit with Shannon in 1976, which went all the way to number six in the U.S. And he has maintained a long and successful solo career. As a session musician, he played guitar on Jim Croce's breakthrough album, I Got a Name which I love, and on albums by Judy Collins and Andy Kim. His songs have been recorded by Mary Travers, Cindy Lauper, and Jonathan Edwards, among others. And he was in the show Pump Boys and Dinettes. How about that? And best of all, he's from Brooklyn. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to do a song fest, as I do with all my musician guests, where we're going to play a handful of Henry's best songs and you're going to get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in the beginning of every episode and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is called A Lover's Plea from the album that I put out last year called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. I chose this song because Henry was in Sha Na Na and I wrote A Lover's Plea as a 50s song with that classic 50s chord progression, which must have been used in a million songs. Anyway, I thought it worked. So, Henry Gross, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you. That's it? That's it. What am I going to tell you? <laughs> All right, thank you, you folks. A lover's plea, a lover's question. That's a lover's question. I'd like to know. <laughs> I was probably thinking about that when I named it, too. All right, but let's start with that, because the 50s thing is, you know, part of your life with Sean on. Tell us how you got into that. Did you always love 50s music, or did it just kind of happen? No, I grew up on it. I love that music. I was playing in the Greenwich Village with a couple of guys that were at Columbia University. I was at Brooklyn College. We had a, a little group. We would go and play all the folk clubs, you know, the Gertie's Folk City and the Gaslight, all those kind of clubs that were in Greenwich Village in the 60s. And it was called the Tactical Peace Force. <laughs> How's that for an idiotic name? And then we changed it. One of the guys from Columbia, very who, who fancied himself a wit, uh, changed the name to Orogeny which for those of you 
which is all of us who are unfamiliar with that term, it's the forming of a crust on the earth following an earthquake. <laughs> he was living in an alternate universe. Yes, I'm sure that name went over very well. Yeah, and these guys were in a glee club at Columbia called the Kingsman. And at one of their little performances that they did for a couple hundred people, they did Little Darlin', you know, that was originally done by the Gladiolas and later by the Diamonds. La, 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 la. And anyway, they did this song with, with their big 12, 13 guys, wherever it was. And the people went crazy. They just went crazy. And the older brother of one of the members, George Leonard, his name was, he was a senior at Columbia, saw this and had an epiphany, as it were, and said, you grease your hair, you wear 50-style clothes, put a couple of guys up front and go lame suits and do, all, do a show of all... 50s rock and roll songs, you know. And so they put together this group and did a concert on the steps of Low Library at Columbia, and it was called Grease Under the Stars, the Glory That Was Grease. And they, you know, stick papers all over the place. And they thought, you know, five, six hundred people would show up if they were lucky, you know. Right. But about 5,000 people showed up, and the whole quadrangle was solid students and professors dancing naked in the fountains. It was outrageous. <laughs> I was invited because my friends were doing this goof. And I saw it, well, the next day, I think one of the members you know, quit in disgust. <laughs> and I, of course, joined. And so together we created this love letter to the 1950s that we called Shana Na. All right, so where did that name come from? Yip, 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 boom. Shana Na Na, Shana Na Na, get a job. So that's where it came from. But we got it wrong because, or the sheet music got it wrong because the original sheet music that one of the guys came up with months after we were known already, they claimed the lyric was Sha Da Da, which would have been a terrible name. So we'll go with Sha Na Na. All right. I have to interject a little story. My band is called Project Grand Slam. And I've told the story before on the podcast that I named that band Project Grand Slam because of a James Bond movie that I'm sure you saw, called Goldfinger. Love. Where the plot to ruin the gold at Fort Knox was called Project Grand Slam. So I thought that was a cool name for a band, except I got it wrong. When I looked at the movie again six months after I named the band, it was Operation Grand Slam. Ah, you see? And oh my God, what am I going to do now? I Googled Operation Grand Slam, and I found that there was some kind of a genocidal program in Africa it was nicknamed Operation Grand Slam. And I said, I don't think that's a great name for a band. I stuck with Project Grand Slam. Not a sweet story, but we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. All right. So you're in Shanana, and it's a big hit, not only at Columbia, but around the world. And you get into Woodstock. Tell me about that. Well, it's just we didn't, no one knew what it was going to be. We just knew it was a big festival and we got booked on it somehow. And didn't think about it too much. And I mean, I could talk about that for two hours or five hours. So how much did you get paid to play Woodstock? I never got a dime. They gave us a check. Regardless of what you've seen on the internet, 
Shanana's manager from the time, Ed Goodgold, who's uh, the late Ed Goodgold, sadly, he's a wonderful man, said that we got a check for $300 and it bounced. <laughs> 12 guys. <laughs> I remember somewhere reading that I think Jimi Hendrix was like the number one highest paid performer at Woodstock. Yeah. And I think he got, I don't know, $700, something like that. No, no, he got 18 grand. He did, huh? And it didn't bounce? Yeah, whether he collected, I can't tell you. Okay. You never know. Yeah, he was a great guy. I mean, I met all these people there. You know, I, I knew Jimi Hendrix from before Woodstock. I had met him through a mutual friend who was a musician in New York, a name you probably don't know, but that you can Google. His name was Velvet Turner. And Velvet looked a lot like Jimmy. And I met him in high school chorus. He, we used to sit together. And he was a great artist. He would draw people in the class. And he was one of those guys that could sit in Central Park and draw you and your girlfriend and you'd give him, you know, 25 bucks. You know, he's he's a very talented artist. Anyway, he made one album after Jimmy died and it wasn't a, a great record, but he he was a lovely man. And I through him, I met Jimmy and spent time with him before Woodstock, an evening we spent together. And uh, so when he came to see us playing this club, we started playing a club in New York called the Steve Paul Scene. And that was owned by Steve Paul, who managed Johnny Winter at the time, and Edgar and all that. Anyway, when we were playing there, um, Jimmy came down because he heard about us, as did Eric Clapton, as did Rick Derringer and Alice Cooper. I mean, we, we became a thing because it was such an odd oddity that we were reviving the music of the 50s, which everyone had loved and thought, you know, now we always said uh, we were going to come back, you know, in, in 10 years doing a psychedelic band, calling calling it, you know, mimicking, you know, doing that as a revival and calling it the tomato spaceship. But anyway, uh, so that, so anyway, then, then we, you know, so I knew Jimmy. When we, I got to the hotel on Sunday morning, Jimmy was there and we spent, I won't tell the whole story because it would take up the whole show. But anyway, we went on right before him as the last, he was the last act. We went on eight o'clock in the morning, Monday morning. And what went on between when, when we arrived nine o'clock Sunday at you know the Holiday Inn and was it called Fernwood? Between then and when we played, well, those stories, you know, would take up more time than you have. I was playing in the Catskill Mountains that summer. I was in the show band at one of the hotels. And I got to Woodstock Sunday morning. It was after the show that we played on Saturday night. Got there Sunday morning in time to hear Joe Cocker come on the stage, which was a life-changing event to hear that guy play. I was standing right next to him. I was like, I was 20 feet away. That was you? No, I was on the stage. But if you were looking at the stage from the audience, I would have been on the left side. Interesting. Why? Why were you up there? We'd have to do a whole story. You want to do this? I want to talk. Well, okay. Um, because they didn't know when they were going to put Shanana on. And we didn't have a hotel room or anything because we were supposed to play in the afternoon and then leave, you know, and drive home. So it, we didn't know that we had left at like 10 o'clock at night, Saturday night, and we thought we'd get up there in two, three hours. Well, we didn't get there till nine in the morning because Route 17 was closed. Right. And every time we finally got to where the police had to barricade, We'd say we're playing at this festival, and they go, "Yeah, right, you and me both." <laughs> so until they got a hold of Artie Kornfeld or Mike Lang, you know, or whoever, it was. It took forever to get there, so we were exhausted when we got there. And I ran into Jimmy, who was 
he had a giant bottle of Jack Daniels, like a quarter Jack Daniels. So Jimmy and I got into that. And then they took me in a helicopter. I was completely gone. And I went up in a helicopter and they turned the helicopter on like so we could see the festival. But the door was open and nobody was strapped in. <laughs> that would have been one heck of an entrance, let me tell you. Some of us mentioned to the pilot that if he didn't take us down, he would be cleaning this thing for the rest of his life. So they brought us back down. And then I saw Jimmy again, and he was laughing about it because he had been in the, you know, I think the, you know, I, I forget which number, the 21st Airborne or something. And anyway, he was a parachuter when he hurt his leg. So he thought it was funny how scared I was. So we drank on that. And now I was beyond delirious. So about a half an hour later, an hour later, a guy comes and says, we've got your car is here. We got a car for you because I wasn't getting back in the helicopter. So they, this car shows up. It's like a 50s Cadillac. And I'm thinking, all right, now we're, this is perfect. So I get in the back of the car and we drive away at about a half a mile an hour because there's kids all over the place. And the door pops open and a guy jumps in next to me with round orange sunglasses and a big beard. And it's Jerry Garcia. And he sees that I'm completely smashed and he smiles and takes something from his denim jacket and rolls it up. And um, after that, they say, if you remember Woodstock, you weren't there. Well, I was there. <laughs> I do you remember, do remember Joe Cocker, though. I do remember Joe Cocker when they drove us to the stage. We didn't end up going on. Cocker went on like one o'clock in the afternoon. We didn't right. play till eight in the morning. So there was, and it poured half the time. So there was a lot of action backstage and things going on. And to tell you how good whatever Jerry had was, you know, like, again, they say, if you remember Woodstock, you weren't there. Well, I had no recollection of having spent the entire afternoon with Jerry backstage. And, and, and a guy that was in my first band, his father was a gym teacher. And in the summers, he worked the Esther Manor in another hotel, which is how we got in there as a band. Which Esther Manor was a hotel in the Catskills next to Monticello Raceway. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with it. And it, and it featured among many things, every track bum in New York State. <laughs> so so anyhow, it's funny. So I didn't know that I spent the afternoon with Joe. But my friend Carl Fisher, whose father was the gym guy, somehow we reconnected years after Woodstock. And we were talking about it. And I didn't remember seeing him there. <laughs> you know, and I knew him like I know him. I would have known a brother. We played a, thousand, a million gigs together when we were young. And I didn't remember that I saw him there. I didn't remember he was working backstage. And he reminded me, he said, yeah, you were with Jerry Garcia. The two of you were holding court. And I went, really? And I tell me all about it so I can include it in my story. <laughs> so, you know, pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, you know, that was quite an event. No question about it. And uh, interesting that you were front and center. And I understand you were the youngest performer there. Is that true? Yeah, but it's not an achievement. It's just an accident of birth. Well, listen, happy accidents, there's nothing wrong with that. All right, so let's go past Woodstock. You became a big hit with Shannon in 1976. Well, it was a long road. You know, it's never the immediate. I left the group. I was doing nothing. You know, I didn't want to rejoin the group. I had made a decision to leave, and I had several offers to rejoin the group. And I and they were getting very, very popular. And I, I just, I didn't think there was any need for me in the group. I thought anybody who could play guitar well and sing, you know, could do it. 
you know, and I thought that I wanted to be a writer. And so I played at clubs in New York and I did some, a lot, bunch of shows, several shows with Tim Harden, who I got to, you know, bless his heart, one of the great songwriters of all time and his influence. If I was a carpenter, am I right? If I were a carpenter, you were a lady, would you marry me anyway? Would you have my baby? He wrote If I Were a Carpenter, Red Balloon. He wrote The Lady Came from Baltimore, and probably his greatest song, Reason to Believe. I'd find a way to leave the past behind Knowing that you lied Straight face while I cried Still I'd look to find a reason to believe which has been cut more times than, you know, uh, it's unbelievable. Great song. I agree. Um, he's an unbelievable talent. And he was, a, he was, he had a drug problem, but he was a very wonderful guy. I liked him a lot. And he was playing in a duet, a duo with a guy called Warren Bernhardt. And it was called Bernhardt and Harden. Warren Bernhardt, I believe he's still alive and probably in New York. He was one of the most amazing keyboard players. And to hear Tim and him together, Wow. And, you know, and I'd open the set, you know, I'd be on before them. And then I would just sit there enthralled by them. So I went through that. And then I got signed by ABC Dunhill in L.A. and went out there and did did an album. I did this album and uh, I wouldn't say it was released. I, as they say, it escaped. But <laughs> but then I was signed um, to A&M and I did an album just call, again called Henry Gross. And as the, the great Gilbert Gottfried said to me, you had two albums called Henry Gross. And I said, when you've got a name like that, you don't just use it on one album. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, had some, I had some regional hits on that record. Simone was very big. I was really starting to get somewhere with that album. Then I did another album for an A&M called Plug Me Into Something. And that album really took off and sold nearly a half million copies. And then my producers, Cashman and West, bought my contract from Albert and Moss, uh, who owned A&M, Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, and put me on their label called Life Song, and our first single was Shannon. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album, called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals, like Child's Play. Plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire.
and Chick Corea's Sea Journey. I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip, tight, and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, let's get off of this and let's get into some music. I want to go to the Songfest portion of this interview. And I want to start out with one of the songs that you did with Shanana. You did a cover of Remember Then. That night we fell in love beneath the stars above. That was a lovely summer night. Remember then. Tell me a little bit about that. I understand it was a guy named Henry Gross that was singing that song. That's right. It was my first released record. It was on Buddha Records and the first album that I, that I was involved in. And it was side one, cut one, and it was the first single. And the song was originally cut by the Earls and it was produced by a guy named Stan Vincent. And there's a great story with this because there's stories of these songs. The, if you ever hear the Earl's version of the original version of Remember Then, the guitar sound, I never could get how they got it. It was a great sound. So they took a Fender Telecaster, like a 50s or 60s Telecaster, whenever it was 50s Telecaster, and put it up by the microphone and recorded it with no amp. And that's what made that sound. If you ever hear the Earl's version of Remember Then, you'll hear the beginning. It's fantastic. And that's what it was. See, this is the stuff that I love to know. I love that stuff, too. All right. So let's move to the next one, which is I, I have to play your big hit because we would be remiss if we didn't. did this song Shannon and you had that falsetto thing going there and I'm just curious how you got that into there were you a friend of Frankie Valley when you were younger what what was the deal with the falsetto not so much but I was a big fan of Brian and Carl Wilson and I liked Frankie Valley I loved his records I thought he was a little bit screechier than the Beach Boys you know it was like yeah, 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 as opposed to you know, it was a sweet, beautiful sound on Brian Wilson and Carl, who was my favorite singer and a good friend he became from touring with him. So I wrote this 
I was at Carl's house, and and we were ha- you know we were going to have lunch when his two giant husky dogs jumped up and ate everything. <laughs> and so he, he was so nice he couldn't stop apologizing. Did he get you another sandwich? That's the question. No, no, I, we went out afterwards. But I said, I said, Carl, don't worry about it. I have a crazy Irish setter at home, and I've seen this performance many times. And I said that my dog's name was Shannon. I, an Irish setter called Shannon. And he got very quiet, and he said, you know, Henry, I had a dog named Shannon that I love very much. He was hit by a car and killed a month ago. So when I got back to the U, I know, you know, it really freaked me out because it's really thinking losing your dog. I mean, it's too much. So when I got home, I was sitting on uh, on the bed in my apartment and I was thinking about Carl and I thought, and I started writing this kind of, well, actually the reason I wrote the music the way it was going was there was a guy upstairs me who had his speakers on the floor and he was playing rap music. And I hear through the, it was rattling the walls. So the only way you could get rid of it was to put on white noise. So I put on, there used to be these records called environments records, the ultimate seashore. So I put it on. And when I put this on, it made me think of the Beach Boys. So I wrote this song hoping Carl would sing it. And I, I thought he'll love this. It's about losing his dog. So I wrote the song. It took 20 minutes to write it. I, I always tell people I didn't write it. I wrote it down. It was you, know, you write enough songs, sometimes one just is given to you. God gives you a freebie. And so I sent it to him. I, I sang it into one of those cassette boxes. They were made by Sony. They were the size of the laptop, you know? Right. And so I sent him the cassette. And I never heard from him about it. And I was going to do a record. And I said, heck, I'm going to cut this song. So I did it. It sold a couple of million records. and. I saw Carl in a rehearsal studio at Studio Instrument Rentals in L.A. before I did the Midnight Special, and they were in there rehearsing for a tour. And Carl said, Carl came over and he said, Henry, I heard your song on the radio, and it sounded so much better than that tape you sent me. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't realize why why he said that. He wasn't being flipped. Years later, a dear friend of mine till today called Robert White Johnson, who's a great songwriter, has written a million songs. He's written pop hits, Christian hits. He's a wonderful person. And Robert White was writing with Carl Wilson and making demos at a studio called The Castle. And Robert said, come on out. You know, Carl wants to see you. You know, come out to the session. So I did. And these guys had spent two weeks on like two songs. I cut whole albums in less time than that. With with the guys I was working with, I got one or two takes. That was it. Live, the vocals were mostly live. You know, we but boom, boom, next song. You know, right. so but they were spending weeks, and I realized, of course, Carl, since he was thirteen, he was in a hit band. He never did a demo in his life. <laughs> you know, he, you know, he made records. So, did he ever get back to you as to why he didn't want to cut that record himself? Well, he, no, he just said, well, first of all, the Beach Boys didn't do outside songs much, if ever. Uh-huh. And you know, they they cut a Chuck Berry song, you know, rock and you know rock and roll music or something, rock 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 and roll music. But they did mostly their they own. Could have had a Henry Gross song with two albums named Henry Gross. Come on, well, they, you know. But yeah, absolutely right. The Beach Boys sing Henry. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, listen. Let's go on to some of your later stuff. The next one we got playing underneath is High Enough. It's a real kind of upbeat rocker. Everybody's telling me I'm guilty of a felony I took somebody's melody and put it in my song 
Tell me about that one. Well, it starts, everybody's telling me I'm guilty of a felony. I took somebody's melody and put it in my song. I admit I'm, la I admit I'm lazy, but I'd never be so crazy, you know, basically because I know right, because I still know right from wrong. And the thing is, when Shannon was a hit, my lawyer got some letters from some people claiming they had written it, and they sent stuff that sounded as much like Shannon as the Volga boatman sounds like, <laughs> you know, and their lawyers were calling, you know, it's like, so I just thought, you know, it was this like, is like the, the, the modern day version of that is the Nigerian prince sending out the emails asking for money. Well, yeah, exactly. I sent him five grand. You didn't, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, that's what it was. And, and, and it was about my career, you know, I've been high enough to see over the mountain, been high enough to, fl to fly above the rain. Been down so low, stole pennies from the fountain. Been high enough to toss them back again. And that's life. The ups and the downs. You know, show business is just a paint job. Life is a succession of, you know, when you're number one, the only thing you have in life to look forward to is going down. Is being number <laughs> two. <laughs> you know, so it's like everything in life. You know, people don't realize that today is the best day you'll ever have. You'll never feel better than you do today, unless you're, God forbid, sick, you know? But, you know, especially when you get older and stuff starts to hurt, you know, you, you don't notice your shoulder when you're 25, unless you're in a football team, but, you know. What's that book that Carl Reiner wrote something about when I get up in the morning and I don't see myself in the obituary, I know it's a good day. Yeah, I Mel Brooks. I look, I read the obituaries. If I'm not, it was the George Burns actually said uh -huh. that. If I'm not, if my if I'm not in there, I get dressed and I go to my club. There you go. <laughs> That's what George Burns said. All right, let's go to the next one. In my own sweet time. And you know what was not startling to me, but was interesting to me? You have such a high voice in that one. It's like a tenor type of thing. Is that your natural voice? Yeah, I, I lose my voice from singing low notes. My voice was higher when I was younger, but I still sing. You can hear on that that I, I hit very high notes. Yes. But my mom sang with the Metropolitan Opera Chorus briefly. She was a singer. So she taught me, you know, things. That's where you got it from. When I was listening to this one, I said, this is Pavarotti singing rock and roll. Ah, oh, that's very kind. He's my my favorite singer, but I love Pavarotti. I love that one where he sings It's a Man's World with James Brown. Have you seen that video on oh, YouTube? Oh, you should watch it. It's mind-blowing.
because James Brown is every bit as good a singer as Pavarotti, but the world mostly knows him for going popcorn. Hey, but James Brown is an amazing singer. He was just a brilliant singer. He was a heck of a dancer too. Well, he was. And you know, he started out, he was on King Records and he did all these kind of doo-wop songs James Brown did. He was an amazing singer. And he has a great catalog. You hear those songs. I love those records. I have them all. I guarantee this is the first podcast that went from Pavarotti to James Brown within 10 seconds. Okay? For the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do another one here. Waltz of the Toreadors. This is you at your singer-songwriter best. Dancing the waltz of the Toreadors. Memories flowing to faraway shores. Deep in the forests, way out in the You know, you got that song, obviously, to say that. A lot of people won't spend the time to hear that. It's the, the reason why Bob Dylan didn't sell as many records as the Beatles. You know, that to me is me at my best, at my most, doing what I love to do. But of course, if I just did that, I would have sold, you know, over a dozen records. But it, the people that love that song adore it. It's my wife's favorite song, maybe, of, of all my songs, and it's probably mine too. It just tells a lot of true stories in there in, in three minutes. It's a lovely song, no question about it. Okay, I want to do one more with you because this one was really different. I like this one that you sent me. Breakfast, okay? This was funky, had the horns thing going. It was like you grew up, you matured with this one. Tell me about that. Well, a different, different kind of music. I love Steely Dan, but it's never been my thing to go a jazz way. But I had this song, it's called Breakfast at Epiphanies. And, and the lyric really makes sense if you listen to it. It's about a guy whose life is full, you know, of going to these places that inspire him. And he has a full life and he meets a girl and he knows it's not going to happen because his, his dance card is full. He has breakfast at Epiphanies, lunch at Serendipities, tea at Eccentricities, coffee at, at Lucidities, or whatever the, the, the words are, you know. And and so, it, but finally, he realizes that you know he his he 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 found religion, and he goes, "I never say never no more. I believe." And so now his mind is open to it, and she says uh, she says the right thing to him. And he opens his heart to her. And then he, in the end, they're going to 
you know, she's going to share his, he's going to take her night and day to all his epiphanies. And he realizes she's the one to share them with him. And it's an interesting, it's novel and it's new and it's not, you know, a typical Hallmark card. Listen, I think that your lyrics are extraordinarily clever in so many of your songs. I love the rhymes that you come up with. And you know who, who you remind me of in some of this? There's a guy that I love who was one of the two main guys in Supertramp, Roger Hodgson, who also was, was terrific with putting out lyrics that just had those great rhymes and great images at the same time. He's brilliant. I, you know, John Prine was my buddy, and he always loved one song of mine. It was called Six O'Clock, and it was a 50s rocker, kind of like, um, like, you know, like Long Tall Sally or something. And, and the hook was, you know, that's Six O'Clock Sure Can Rock, that skinny little girl from down the block, the one that looks like Six O'Clock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a great way to end this entire thing. <laughs> we have been speaking here with the great Henry Gross who has gone through so many different phases from Sha Na Na to Shannon to all the singer-songwriter stuff. And we didn't even get to Pump Boys and Dinettes. We'll have to get to that the second time around. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I want to thank you so much for doing this. It was my pleasure. And uh, as I say to everyone I love, I'll see you sooner than you want. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're going to listen now to that song of mine that started off the episode it's called A Lover's Plea. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. Just one.